Our scripture reading for this morning is out of the book of Acts, chapter 4, starting at uh, verse 31, all the way through chapter 5, verse 11. So if you have your Bibles, uh, if you'll follow along with me. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now the number or the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many were as owners of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The, the young man rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried, it, buried him. And after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what happened to him. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much? And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately, she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead. And they, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. This is the word of the Lord. So there's a, there's a theological concept that will help you when we're studying this portion of the development of the early church. And it's rooted in this idea that there's a difference between the people who populate a, a local body of a church and, and the true uh, known only to God people of God that comprise the true church. Uh, the terminology we use to describe this is the visible versus the invisible church. You may be familiar with it. The visible church very simply is what you can see. Uh, it's the gathered congregation. It's, it's this worship service. It's something that you would see when you look through our membership roles. While the invisible church is the whole collection of Christians, as it were, from God's point of view. 
They're the truly Christian, the ones that are genuine and not just sort of posing. But, of course, the role of that particular church is a whole lot harder to discern, isn't it? And, and what makes this concept so interesting is how much it's sort of been fought over through the history of the church. Obviously, all of us would like to think that everyone in my church is really and truly an actual Christian. There's no hypocrisy in our church, right? But at the same time, we recognize, though, that spiritual fakers, they can constitute a real threat to the church, can they not? And so you have literally entire denominations that have been formed over the last 500 years of Protestant history, all of who, who are trying to find the one true church most pure. Uh, spoiler alert, they haven't found it yet. But weirdly, there's this other reaction that I think is very subtle because many sort of nominal Christians, Christians who are Christians in name only, will use the messiness and hypocrisy of the local church as an excuse not to be a member of a church at all. Instead, they'll say, with no small amount of presumption, I might add, well, I don't belong to any visible church. I belong to the invisible church. Uh, we hold services every Sunday morning in my bed, in my pajamas. Uh, no one's really invited, but that's where I worship, right? I, it always reminded me of that Charlie Brown quote when he said, you know, it's not that I have any problem with humanity, uh, it's people that I can't stand. <laughs> because what you see is you see people who are sort of trading involvement in the visible church and sort of saying that they're really involved in the invisible church. Peter Lightheart has a wonderful little book called The Kingdom and the Power, where he, he describes this mindset in a sort of hilarious way. He says, some Christians are sort of like a man going through a midlife crisis who dreams of a perfect woman to replace his aging wife, so that the concept of a perfect invisible church is used to rationalize their abandonment of what, a, what is to all appearances a sagging and wrinkled visible church. He says, nowhere to be sure do the New Testament writers flinch from a full acknowledgement of the sin and the turmoil within the church. Some apostles would no doubt have grimly nodded if told of some wit's suggestion that the church is a little bit like Noah's Ark. If it weren't for the rain outside, you couldn't stand the stink inside. <laughs> My point is, corruption in the church, hypocrisy in the church, I don't think that's that big of a headline maker. But when we use the, the idea of an invisible church as a way to abandon involvement in real-life people, you neuter something huge in Christianity and also large chunks of the New Testament. I've gone back on a couple of occasions to Hebrews 13, 17, when it says, obey your leaders and submit to them. Well, how do you obey that verse if you're not an actual visible member of some sort? So I'm suggesting the distinction between visible and invisible is entirely appropriate, just not as an excuse to refuse to join up with the ragged tag band of people that are occupying the chairs next to you on your row. Look, we saw two weeks ago that as the church advances, there's inevitably going to be opposition from the outside, especially those from the liberal end of the, of the spectrum. But in our passage this morning, we see the contrast between this spirit-filled community of the church with a judgment-worthy cancer that Ananias and Sapphira are bringing. In other words, there's just as much danger from within the church as there is from outside of the church. 
And so the Spirit has to, in our passage this morning, eradicate three cancers. And they go a little bit like this. They want, they got to get rid of living in fear, separating faith and practice, and faking spiritual piety. Let's look at that first cancer. There's a living in fear. Verse 31 says, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they continue to speak the word of God with boldness. Okay, so it is another characteristic of the Holy Spirit. You'll know when he's shown up when you get bold. To be spirit-filled means you're filled with boldness. Now, why would that be the case? Well, I think you can find this best in another passage of Scripture, especially in Romans 8, 15, where Paul says this, For you Christians did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. In other words, the Spirit's work is in your life to oppose a spirit of fear. The Holy Spirit's presence is the opposite of fearfulness. We become fearless when he shows up. But how does he do this? Well, that's what the Romans passage is saying. He does this by assuring us that we are children of God. Look, the Spirit of God comes to convince you that God is really your Father, and you and Jesus are co-heirs of the world. And once you sort of deeply and consistently know that fact, the less fear you have about entering the world and especially the less fear you have about your material well-being. That's what we're saying. By the way, the same thing happened to Jesus when he was baptized. You realize this in Matthew 3, 17. Remember when Jesus came up out of the water, there's that voice of his father who says, this is my absolutely much-loved son. I am so pleased with him. And as soon as he finishes that, it empowers him enough to go into the wilderness to, in, to endure assault after assault from Satan. You see the point? As Jesus was spirit-filled, it gave him strength to do what he was supposed to do. Okay, with that in mind, look now at, at, chapter, at verse 32 in our passage. When we see what the result of that boldness is, the result we find is a radical generosity. It says, no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Now look, there's a bunch of interesting things in that passage that I want to unpack. The first of which is this, and I mentioned this briefly a couple weeks ago, but it deserves mentioning again. There are those within sort of what we might refer to as progressive Christianity who see a form of early socialism in these passages. You know, a forced sharing of their resources together. Uh, but it really just isn't there. Look, Marxism can only ensure the sharing of resources <laughs> at the business end of a gun. That's not what these people were doing. They were sharing willingly. This was coming straight from their hearts. In other words, the passage isn't negating the rights of private ownership, as some have wanted them to say. What it's saying is that only spirit-filled boldness will make you think about your possessions in a very different way. You'll look at the world differently. Now, how was that? Well, it shows us the main point here, and that is that these spirit-filled people demonstrate so often that at the root of our lack of generosity is not so much stinginess as it is fearfulness. In other words, this connection was that the more that Christians are assured of God's love for them, the more spiritually secure and confident you become in that assurance, the more generous they become. That's the connection. They began to open their homes. They opened their purses. 
You know, in the Old Testament, God required his people to give away 10% of everything they had in order to help God advance his mission in the world. In the New Testament, they gave whatever it took. Why? Well, because have you ever noticed how much it is that money just has a way of making us feel secure? I realize that in adulthood, the money that you have is not just, it's not just there to buy all the good toys. <laughs> no, what it's doing is, is it's showing me that I'm really insecure about my life if I don't have money. And I wonder if our problem is not so much that we're not stingy, it's that we're scared. It's not so much that we struggle with greed as much as we struggle with cowardice. One preacher said it this way. He said, our bank accounts are not going to last any longer than our lives, so we might as well give it away because there's nothing left to fear. You see, what happened to these earliest believers that was the spiritual equivalent of winning the lottery because what they discovered was that the Spirit came along and demoted the importance of their possessions. Now they could hold them with open hands. They weren't clenched around their possessions, and so they shared them with all. So that's the first cancer that the Spirit's trying to purge, is this idea of living in fear. But secondly, you begin to see him trying to deal with this, this, this uh, uh, experience of separating their faith from their practice. I find verse 33 fascinating. Look what it says. It says, and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Okay, so the apostles are standing up and doing the work of evangelism, but what we're finding is, is they don't just talk about it. They don't just talk about the resurrection. They begin to live it out in generosity. Look, the resurrection comes along, and what it did for these early believers is it, it functionally neutered the, the fear of death itself. I mean, and, and of all things, once you take death out as something that can, throw, that can threaten you, does it, does it say something about how you're going to treat your stuff? Because once you remove the fear, there's no more obstacles to generosity. And what that means this is I can become a whole person. I don't just have beliefs about resurrection, but I have actions that show that I think it's true. Commentator Dick Lucas says this way. In other words, the apostles talked about the power of Christ's resurrection with arguments and evidences, while the community embodied and demonstrated the reality of Christ's resurrection with newness of heart and life and relationships. See what he's saying? You know, a lot of times you'll hear Christians saying how important it is to keep a ministry of word and a ministry of deed together. You ever heard that? We want to be a church where we hold together ministry of word and deed. In other words, you can tell, you can't tell people about the gospel unless you're ready to embody the principles of that gospel in my life to those people. And it is a cancer to the body of Christ to have very rich doctrine over here but no incarnation, no fleshing out of that doctrine in very tangible ways. And I want to focus on the fact that the disciples were doing this while they were evangelizing in order to critique kind of where we found ourselves within the last 100 years or so of American Christianity. Because I do think that there's a case to be made that when we say in our day the word evangelism, we oftentimes think of a, of a presentation that we want to make it's been memorized, it's been presented to someone in the hopes that they, uh, what, accept Jesus, which is actually a funny, little, a funny little phrase if you think about it, but another sermon for another time. 
But what happens is, is when we truncate this version of Christianity down to just the presentation, we begin to sort of put all the weight of evangelism on, on the snappiness of our logic, do we not? Or, or, or the undeniability of the facts that we're bringing. Or as I've often heard people, well, that's just something that extroverts do. And here's, here's the deal. I'm not critiquing the substance of those presentations. They all say true things. They may be very helpful sort of uh, summaries of the core of evangelism. But if that's the only way that I think about evangelism as the presentation of information, does that not lead us to all of a sudden make people's Christianity only live in the life of their mind? You follow me? <laughs> Is Christianity simply a stepping up, up into new ideas? It's certainly not less than that, but it's so much more. And I would say that in the last, again, 100 years of evangelicalism, we've adopted very bald multiplication strategies to advance the faith, which of course need to be summarized in gospel messages. But is it possible that we've forgotten that in order for people to believe in God, oftentimes we have to be God to them? I mean, think about this. Can someone really grasp the claim that God forgives sinners until they see a community of people who are patient in forgiving each other more than the rest of the world? We have to be known as that kind of community for dealing with forgiveness differently. I think that's the reason why Jesus judges it so harshly like he does in Matthew 18, parable of the ungrateful servant. Can I go to the poor and tell them about how Jesus can fill the empty places in their soul without filling the empty places in their stomachs? No. Word and deed have to be held together. Can people who are distraught by a lack of assurance of God's love ever get over it until they see us so committed to them in a day-in, day-out love and service that they're just melted into a sense of joy and security? No, the Spirit has got to come and make us whole people, does he not? The same in our profession and in our action. We've got to see those two together. That's exactly what's happening at the end of Acts chapter 4. They're preaching the doctrines of the resurrection and they're living it out by their generosity. That's how they'll know. That's why the church was growing. Okay, so thirdly, that's living in fear and separating faith and practice. The third cancer that the Spirit has to rid of us is this fake spiritual piety. And, and it's only if you have all that in the background that can you understand what happened to Ananias and Sapphira. And look, be honest with yourself, that, this is a harrowing story. Anybody else disturbed by reading this thing? It's actually quite violent. But before you get freaked out by the passage, make sure you understand exactly what they are being judged for. Look back at verses 36 and 37. There we find that there's a guy named Joseph. Joseph is a great guy. Everybody loves Joseph. People were so happy to be around him that they gave him a nickname. They called him Barnabas, which means uh, uh, in Greek, the son of encouragement, the passage says. In other words, this was a respected, popular guy with everybody. And can't you just imagine Ananias and Sapphira standing off to the side watching the treatment of this guy and thinking to themselves, you know, he's getting a lot of attention. Hey, I tell you what, let's do. Why don't you and I sell our field also? Let's go sell a field. So they go and do so. <laughs> but then they get a look at all the money that they got for it. And suddenly their eyes get really wide. And they say to themselves, well, you know, no one would really know the difference 
if we kept some, but let's tell people that we gave it all. You see? So, so the key to understanding this is not making the mistake of thinking that they're judged because they kept the money. Peter makes it very clear in verse, verse 4 when he looks up and says, you were free to do with the money as you please. It was your field. That was yours alone. John Stott says, it's not that they lacked so much honesty that they lacked integrity. They were posing as if they were giving the whole price. And what they wanted was the credit and honor of being big givers. They wanted everybody to stand on the side and be like, wow, did you see what Ananias and Sapphira gave? In other words, the, the, the motive was not for God's honor, it was for theirs. It was hypocrisy, pious pretense, simulated holiness. And so the Holy Spirit, working through Peter, delivers a death sentence to both he and his wife. Oof. Clearly, this is a heinous sin in God's eyes, and the Spirit was having no part in it. But you're not being honest if you don't look at that story and think to yourself, whoa, 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 whoa. That's a little harsh, right? Okay, okay, so, so they exaggerated a little. That was, was that really that bad to deserve their execution? But look, here's my premise this morning, and really summing up this whole passage. I would submit to you that there is actually nothing more damaging than what Ananias and Sapphira were introducing to this early church's witness than this. G.K. Chesterton was the one that said the greatest argument against the truth of Christians <laughs> is the lives of Christians. In other words, God's judgment on these people was harsh because there was nothing more damaging to the church's witness than spiritual pretense. That was the problem. And I realize that for most of us, when we think about the topic of hypocrisy, we get concerned about what people on the outside of Christianity are going to say about people inside the church. I don't go to church anymore because there's nothing but a bunch of hypocrites there. And by the way, don't get defensive when people say that. It's absolutely true. Lack of integrity, I'm sure, is regularly given as reasons for people abandoning the church altogether. I get it. We understand. But what's more important for us to realize is not what the world thinks about us, but it's what hypocrisy does to our fellowship inside the church. Because hypocrisy is really, in many ways, the most radical reversal of what I would argue is the most compelling trait of these early Christians. Why? Because in order to even embrace the gospel, think about this, before you take a first step into Christianity, what do you have to admit? You have to admit that you are a lousy sinner. You have to admit that there is nothing good in you. You've got to go further and to say, even the stuff that I thought that I was doing good is actually just as tainted with sin. And here's the kicker. This is the first principle of entering Jesus' church. Well, at least it ought to be. Look, admitting that you're a sinner, though, is what I'm trying to say is also the most inviting thing about being among Christians. You ever thought about that? Think about the first time that you were gathered with believing people and someone decided to get real. They decided to confess their struggles. Didn't you feel your heart lift just a little bit when you thought to yourself, oh, you too? <laughs> you too? Suddenly you felt a little bit connected, didn't you? 
for a second, you were a little less lonely. You thought to yourself, maybe someone could still love me. Maybe there might be some hope because if that person can make it through this, maybe I can too. Now, don't forget that lesson because what it means is, is that authenticity and vulnerability, that, my friends, is the base note of Christian fellowship. Once that makes it into a group of people, you find them easy to be around. Why is the church growing so fast in the New Testament? I think this is the reason why. It's because they had taken off all their masks and they decided they had a freedom in Christ to be authentic with one another and real about their struggles. But see, the opposite of that is hypocrisy means, if there's hypocrisy, it means that people inside the church, they can't trust each other anymore. The spiritual posturing is putting on a false face, doing our best to make sure everybody knows that I have it all together. And what that does is, is it creates a community of people who are afraid to admit that they're struggling. And when that happens, there is no honesty. There's no repentance. There's no genuineness. And you know what happens? You become repellent. <laughs> we become a stench. We're those religious people over there, which nobody believes, by the way, except for us, about each other. Look, my guess is, is this is why the church was growing with the speed in which it was, because they could be themselves. In a pharisaical culture, there were people who were finally standing up, admitting the worst about themselves, with also the confidence in knowing that Jesus took care of that. And it was, it was infectious. Dick Lucas again says, lying and hypocrisy means the death of radically loving supernatural spiritual community, which was being so powerfully used to spread the gospel. That's our evangelism that we're looking for, I would, I would mind you. And what it means is for us is, is we ought to be feeling uncomfortable when we see why it was that God made these people drop dead as he did. Because we share in Ananias' sin when we're trying so desperately to make people think that we're more spiritual than we really are. That our prayer life is, is, is as easy as it possibly could be. And that we want people to know that I've got my life together. Why else did I come to church? Think about that. How often do people join the church? Not because they know they're sinners, but because they join the church so that no one will ask them if they're sinners. <laughs> You ever thought about that? We come and we join so that no one actually brings the, 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 the eye of scrutiny upon us. Oh, well, they go to church. Of course, they're fine. Look, can you see how possible it is, maybe even likely, that we could be the most zealous evangelists sharing gospel outlines with people till the cows come home? But when it's done with an obnoxiousness that's born of insecurity and fear, a lack of spirit-ledness, it's going to do the opposite. It repels the church. Church doesn't grow in that spirit. It shrinks in that spirit. Obviously, I've quoted her many times before, but I still think that Brene Brown is the expert in the value of vulnerability. I read an article a while back where she said this. She said, true belonging has no bunkers. Ah, I wish I could just unpack that one for the rest of the morning. She says, we have to step out from behind the barricades of self-preservation and brave the wild. When we race to our customary defenses of political belief, <laughs> race, even religion, you name it. When we do that, we don't have to worry about being vulnerable or brave or trusting. Except doing that is not working. Ideological bunkers protect us from everything except loneliness and disillusionment and disconnection. 
huddled behind them, were left unprotected from the worst heartbreaks of all. Do you see the point here? What, what Brene Brown is saying is there's a worse place than being known as being a sinner. And that worse place is being lonely. It reminded me of that, that passage in Dante. I don't know if you remember reading Dante when you were in high school or college. Dante talks about all the levels of hell. But by the time you get to the base level of hell, you find that it's occupied by hypocrites. And they're all wearing these gorgeous, beautiful, gilded capes. But Dante goes on to explain that the capes are actually made of lead. And as the hypocrites walk around, they continue to cry out over and over again, Oh, weary mantle of eternity. In other words, what Dante is saying is as beautiful as hypocrites are trying to be in appearance, they carry a debilitating weight to life. And it suppresses the life of the church as it exists. Let me see if I can put it this way. Why is it that we all got weepy at the end of the movie, The Help? <laughs> you remember at the end of The Help when finally you had this great uh, uh, confrontation between the, the, the African-American uh, um, worker, Abilene Clark, who finally confronts Miss Hilly, the contemptuous Miss Hilly. And she looks at her and she says, all you do is you scare and lie and try to get what you want. You're a godless woman, Miss Hilly. Ain't you tired? Ain't you tired? What, what, what was Catherine Stockett saying when she said that? She said, she's saying it is exhausting to walk around with a weight of trying to portray to the community that we have it all together. Look, Christ Pres, we, we are growing. Praise the Lord. We're growing. We've got brand new people coming to our church all the time. But the burden upon us, I would argue, with that growth is dealing with this, this idea of what we will be to our community. And God forbid we should become a group of people that are known by those who have it all together and not a group of genuine, broken people. Because if that's not the case, then we're not going to be a community at all. And I realize that it's hard to sit there and wrestle with this fact of saying, I, there's no way that I could ever tell my small group about the, about the fact that she told me last week that she was going to leave me. There's no way that I could actually talk about what's going on inside of my heart because I'm too far down this business crooked thing that I've started. The fraud is too great because I'll face legal action. There's no way I would ever go and talk to a minister about this sexual addiction that I'm so wrapped up in right now. See, when that becomes to creep in and it becomes sort of, sort of um, our normal party of operation, we've ceased becoming a light to the community. <laughs> Does it matter how clear and doctrinal our evangelistic presentations might be? Not if there's not authenticity. Oxford, Mississippi, the city of appearances, is it not? Will we be a light in this community? The lives of Ananias and Sapphira are screaming to us today saying, can we be an honest, humble people in our community that have found the richness of joy that comes in the fact that Jesus lets me, Jesus lets me confess the worst of me in a place where I know he forgives sins? Isn't that an idealistic version of what the church could be? I hope so. Let's pray. And Father, we pray that that idealism would not give way to something that we might think was unattainable. 
but rather that it might be something that we would take joy in, that you would give us courage. That, Father, even every week as we, we confess our sins using these, these uh, corporate confessions of sin, that we would do so in integrity and actually enjoy as well knowing that this is a place where we can be free to admit those things. Father, make us that kind of community, as painful as it might be. Draw us into, Father, that, to that, that, that bravery that might make us something that we're not right now. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.